I'm going to need your participation this morning because this particular uh, talk we're going to have is not completely boiled for me. And I've spent more time on this than I've spent on any other genre. And there's a reason because we're tackling a particular book that is very complicated and um, in some ways very contradictory. The book that we're looking at is the book of Jonah. So we're in prophecy. That's the genre. Let me say a few things about prophecy, and then we'll uh, jump into the book of Jonah. So prophecy, I've asked you this before. Um, what is prophecy? <laughs> um, how do you perceive prophecy? Let's just do this as a since, hey, we're small today, very small. So um, let's have some participation and um, maybe we can unmute folks here. And um, and just jump in. Tell me what what's prophecy. How do you understand it? They don't have to have a right answer. It's just what have you heard? Pastor Joe, my idea of prophecy is what when people can prophesize what God has in store for someone or some event that's going to happen that they prophesize the word of God coming to them and they're sharing it with us. Thank you, Glenn. Go for it. Uh, what I read was in Jeremiah 33.3, which said, Call unto me, and I will answer thee, and show thee great and mighty things which thou knowest not. And and I know nothing other than the good things that have that have happened, and, and this strikes a chord with me. So I just yeah. wanted to share that with everyone. Thank yeah, you. that's great. That's great. Speaks to a couple things. One is the disposition that you take, which is one of humility. Like, I know nothing. And then the trust that God is going to give you that. Um, yeah, really good. And uh, Eric, you think you put down foretelling and forthtelling. Great distinction. Absolutely. I'll say more about that in a minute. Who else? Speaking life into someone. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. Those are all get. Those are all. Those all get at it for sure. Uh, foretelling and forthtelling. Um, foretelling is the future. Telling of the future, forthtelling, is um, a message from God for the moment, for the now. Um, so uh, one of the ways, um, yeah, call encouragement, calling out the possible. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's something about prophecy that is both, that has some power to it. If you've ever had someone speak words of life to you, man, oh, man especially when the timing is just impeccable. Like you couldn't have coordinated it that way. It's just that they speak words and it hits you so hard in all the right ways. Um, that's what we speak to. That's what we say. That's like something else that's coming from. So that's, that's, there's depth to that. Right? It's pretty powerful. Um, so prophetic literature functions in uh, a kind of both foretelling and forthtelling. Um, but here's where, where I've said this before to all of you, when we're thinking about the future, we have to remember that the ancients did not think of the future the way we do. Um, we thought of the future now, we think of it much more in the sense of, has it already happened? So there's a lot of thought around this um, in, in the world of, you know, physics and, and um and trying to figure out like, are there parallel universes? Are there things that, you know, cause time now is being understood differently. 
In the ancient world, time was thought of more circular. So what happened would happen and would happen again. That is the reason why you hear things like in the John, in the book of Revelation, Revelation is not prophetic literature. It's apocalyptic literature, but it employs, as I've said before, all the genres employ all the other ones. So it employs some prophetic stuff in it. So what does it say about Jesus? He's the one who was, who is, and who is to come. You see that circular th thought in terms of time. Now, somebody might be literal and say, well, yes, because he uh, was at one point and then he is present alive and he's coming again. Sure. Yeah, you can look at it that way. But if you understand the ancient mindset, that's the way they saw all things. And so when you read prophetic literature, you're going to see at times you think that there's a direct correlation like, oh, Jeremiah must be speaking of this exactly. Now, this is the exact timeline. And then you try to fit that timeline and, and many have. Many, not, not like the televangelists, they don't, they're, they're, if you're going to do research, don't go to, it's just like going to Google, find out like what ailment you have. Don't go to a televangelist to find out theology, go to actual scholars, they do the work. Um, and so scholars talk about like, this is how, um, if you try to keep like strict timelines, you get all, you can't because it's, it's very uh, inconsistent. Uh, and that's because prophetic literature isn't intended to say the future's already taken place, and therefore I've been able to peek around the corner and see it, and I'm going to tell you what's coming. That's the way we, th we might think of, of the future, but that's not the way they thought of the future. They thought of the future as it's, it's an unfolding of what already is. And in some ways, I think that that's more accurate. But in any event, that's how the prophetic literature is written. So it's what I'm going to tell you is this is going to happen again, but it's going to happen at a greater level. And there is some foretelling like specifics that this is going to happen. This is going to take place. But even when it doesn't exactly come about that way, the later prophets would reinterpret that and then say, this is what was meant by it. This is the continuation. This is why you see this play itself out all the way through the exile and to the post-exilic times when Israel returns back to her land. All right. And Jesus himself does stuff like that, takes some of the literature and, and reinterprets it. But the power of prophetic literature is that when it is spoken and when it is heard, it lands on you and you know you've heard from God. You know that you know. There's no question. This hits you. That's the power of it. Um, and, and so prophetic literature uh, functions both as a foretelling, but that's very small percentage in the Bible. Very small percentage. So scholars are great. It, it is somewhere around 10%. 90% of it is telling you what God is doing right now. It's to awaken you. That's the reason why prophets were not the mainstream of the religious world. They were outside of that. So if you think of today, evangelicals and those prophets who travel within evangelical circles are not parallel to the ancient prophets of the, of the scriptures. The ancient prophets were outside of the system. They were never liked, <laughs> not by the kings and not by the people. They, were, they created trouble. I mean, this is what's funny about Elijah, right? Elijah comes over to, uh, to uh, King Ahab, and King Ahab goes, hey, troublemaker of Israel, 
<laughs> Elijah goes, hey, I'm not the troublemaker. You are. This is First Kings 19. All right. So it's 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 there's a there's a mutual enmity. There's a mutual dislike. The prophets are regarded not as favorable and the people are are concerned, are freaked out by them most of the time. So um, so this is what's interesting about how um, how prophetic literature um, works in and how prophets worked in the ancient world. What they were doing is they're pointing people back to, um, in some sense, back to something, but also forward to something. So it was, you guys have deviated from the path, and I'm calling you back to the path. I'm, I'm painting the picture for you of what is happening currently and what will keep happening if you don't change. Um, and when people begin to see it, it's like, oh my gosh, I see my life. Wow. You know, we've had parents do that to us, you know, in our younger years when, you know, we thought, how do, how do my parents know everything? Like they seem to know, they seem to know what, how do they know I was going to do that? How do they know I was lying? How do they know, you know, what it is about that is you parents, you've seen enough of your children to know their patterns and to be able to observe that. And, um, and so much of the way prophetic literature works is a, oh yeah, I see your ways. And, um, and that's why many people feel exposed by the prophetic words that come from the prophets and don't like it because they can see themselves in it and they don't like what they see. Um, so that's a little bit about, um, <clears throat> about prophetic literature. Um, what else do I want to say about this? Anything else, maybe? Um, I think that's it. If you have any uh, comments or thoughts or questions about that, uh, please uh, put that in the uh, chat as well. So Jonah is an interesting book in the prophetic literature. Very interesting. Okay, Because we think the minor prophets and the major prophets, we're thinking of, you know, well, I mean, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. You're thinking of all these characters, you know, uh, uh, you've got a lot. There's a whole section called the prophetic literature. And you got the minor prophets and major prophets. And in that section, you have a lot of prophets who are declaring things. They're saying prophetic things. Jonah is not. Jonah is a story about the prophet himself. Now, what do we know about Jonah? Uh, well, not, not very favorable because Jonah uh, prophesies to Jeroboam that Jeroboam is going to have, is going to conquer lands, going to have lands. Uh, later, Amos says the exact opposite. No, Jeroboam, you're going to lose those lands. So we can already see that Jonah is kind of a, fa is, is, is a prophet that is a little too biased <laughs> towards his own people. Uh, and, and, uh, and so Jonah, when we get to his, the book about him, uh, it is a satire of Jonah. This is not meant to be read in any way as a literal uh, rendition of what took place. If you do, you're going to lose the entire point in the message of Jonah. It is an entire satire on the life of Jonah. Jonah's not a good man. I mean, look at Jonah chapter one. God says to Jonah, hey, you need to go and speak to these Ninevites. 
tell them that I'm going to destroy them. Now, who are the Ninevites? That's the capital of, of Assyria. Who are the Assyrians? They're evil. They're some of the most evil oppressors ever. But stuff they did to their victims, to the people they conquered, absolutely horrible. Like literally using their bodies as lamps. They would burn them to line their streets so that whoever walked in would see. This is what we do with those who rebel against us, who don't surrender. Evil, evil, evil. And so who wasn't to hate them? Everybody hated the Assyrians, except of course, if you were Assyrian. And so Jonah is saying, hell no. I hate these people and you should hate them too. You should punish them. What they have done to us is absolutely evil. And you're telling me to go and talk to them about changing their ways. So Jonah goes the exact opposite. What kind of prophet is Jonah? That he runs away from God. He jumps onto a ship, heads west, away from the direction, the opposite direction. Ends up falling asleep inside the boat. A storm comes. Right? You guys know the story? You've heard the story? Storm comes. The boat starts rocking. Jonah's asleep inside the boat. The sailors who are pagan, they worship other gods, start crying out to their gods. And then finally, they figure out through casting dice who might be the culprit. They wake up Jonah. Jonah, who are you? Where are you from? What have you done? And then he stands up, such an arrogant jerk. I am a Hebrew. That's not, he didn't even say I'm a Jew. So his scholars say like, this is the most arrogant form of like speaking. I'm a Hebrew and I worship the God of the land and the sea. So this is a satire, you dummy. How could you be running from God if he's got the land of the God and the, of the, the God of the land and sea? You see the satire? It's like he himself is supposedly in the know of all, like, I know this God, I worship this God, and yet I'm running from him, but there's nowhere to run, but I'm running anyways. So it shows you the character of Jonah right from go. And they say, what can we do? He says, oh, toss me into the sea. I'd rather die than go speak to these people. And what do the pagans do? No, we can't do this. What's happening? Mercy, compassion. We can't do this. We'll do everything. And finally, they throw him into the sea and the seas calm down. And Jonah says, or and the pagans say, oh man, this is a real God. And they worship the God of Jonah. So who is the hero in that chapter one? Who's the good people and who's the bad? It is remarkable satire. It's like, this is the prophet of Israel. And he himself is wrong in every respect, except for he's got his doctrine right, but his behavior is awful. And it's the pagans who end up being the ones who show compassion and mercy. There's more to it. That's good. Stick with that. Stay with that for a moment. Chapter two, Jonah's in the belly of the whale, right? The whale, we call it the whale. It's not a whale in the Hebrew. It's a big fish. Right. So in the in Hebrew, the big fish. So these are these are mythical feet, uh, creatures. This, they show up everywhere. Big fish in the ancient mythical world, they show up all the time. Right. So 
This is, he ends up in the belly of a big fish. In there, he cries out and he has this prayer. Now, if you read the prayer through the lens of a satire, you'll see what I mean by, it is, it is barely the form of repentance. It is mostly like, you know, it's so, so let me read a section, just the last section of it, okay? Just so, so you guys are with me on this and um, how, how odd this is. Um, Zoom is like so quirky. It moves screens around every time any change happens here. So I got to go find my stuff here. All right. So Jonah chapter two, the final part of his prayer. Verse eight, those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will make good. I will say salvation comes from the Lord. <laughs> so he, he, it's, you know, if you read, if you don't read it through the lens of satire, you might think, oh, he's actually praying a good prayer, but it doesn't make sense because he doesn't live anything close to those words. Because what happens is those who cling to worthless idol turn away from, well, who's the one worshiping the worthless idols? Who's the one who has an image of God that isn't really the right image of God? It's Jonah. The pagans don't. The pagans are the ones who try to show mercy and compassion. The very point of the entire book of Jonah, and we'll see this at the climax of Jonah in Jonah chapter 4. The very point of the whole entire thing is God's mercy and compassion and love that is never ending to all people. And Jonah is the one who is not demonstrating it, but the pagans are. And so in his prayer, he says, those who, worth, those who cling to worthless idols, that's a correct, by the way, this is a beautiful truth. Those who cling to worthless idols, they forfeit God's love. They don't experience it. And in the very end, that's exactly what happens. We'll look at it in chapter four. That's exactly what happens to Jonah. He, he avoids God's love. But then he says, but I, I will, I will, with shouts of praise, I will declare that salvation's from God. But then what happens? The, way, the, the big fish throws him up, literally vomits him. So again, this, the, the irony just continues, the humor just continues. It's like the fish can't even take him. It's like, blah, get rid of this dude. Spits him out onto the, onto the seashore. And then Jonah goes out. Now listen to the, listen to the, the word that Jonah gives. If you still like defensive of Jonah, listen to the words that he says to Nineveh. Jonah chapter three. Jonah uh, obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, now this is it. 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. That's not even the message God told him to, to, to say. It's like, in any prophetic literature, if you read prophetic literature, all the prophets list out, there's a certain standard of way of communicating prophecy. You list out the, the ways that that city, that nation, those people have failed the covenants or have failed God. Then you list the upcoming punishment for that failure and then how to repent and how to change. Jonah does none of it. Why? 
because Jonah doesn't want them to change. He wants God's punishment and fire to come down on them. And so he's not going to even give them a little bit. He's just going to say, 40 more days and you're all going to burn. And he's hoping they go, well, screw you. And then he's like, good. You know, that would have been his attitude. But what happens? They all repent. They all change. The king himself. And so Jonah chapter three finishes with God turns away, turns his anger away. And uh, he relents. And then Jonah four. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong. And he became angry. He prayed to the Lord. Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is why I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish, because I knew you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take my life away, for it's better for me to die than to live. And so what happens? God grows a gourd to give him shade. And Jonah falls in love with the gourd. <laughs> he doesn't care about the Ninevites, doesn't care about anybody else. He just falls in love with his gourd. And so God sends a worm and the worm eats the gourd. And now he's even angrier at God. Like this is, you know, if this was a, if this was a movie scene, a comic, we'd all be pretty much dying laughing because of how this is absolute silliness. Like he falls in love with the gourd. He wants the gourd to protect him. He's happy with the gourd. He can't, he doesn't like anybody. He's angry that God made him do this. He gets thrown up by the fish because the fish doesn't even like him. I mean, nothing goes right for, for him because he's just that kind of a character. He just doesn't, doesn't like people except for his own people. And the worm eats the gourd. And then God says something, and it's beautiful because here's the thing that's so profound. Is at this point, I want to hate Jonah, right? But God doesn't hate Jonah. God loves Jonah. And God loves the Ninevites. And God says, you know, Jonah, you care more about this plant than you do about the people of Nineveh. What happened to your heart? What went wrong here for you? It's like, well, I thought that you would punish our oppressors. Isn't that what you do? I mean, isn't that what we all do? Isn't that what we all do? I mean, even if we don't hate our own oppressors, we hate the oppressors who oppress the people we love. And then we want to go and, and defend them and destroy them. And, I, and, and the book of Jonah ends without any resolve whatsoever. Listen to the way it ends. But the Lord said, you have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow, sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I have not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right from their left their right hand from their left, and also, you know, many animals. And there's no answer. 
Fiona does not respond. There's no, that's it. It just ends with that. Why? Because unlike any other book, Jonah's meant to be a mirror to you and to me. The ones who are the insiders, the Christians, the evangelicals, the churchgoers. It's meant to be a mirror to us, for us to ask the very same question. God is asking us the same question. Is how do you feel about me loving your enemies? How do you feel about that? How do you feel about me perhaps showing more mercy or a different kind of mercy than the kind I showed you. And Jesus picks up on this and he tells a story, a parable of a man who owned a field and needed laborers. And he hires some at the beginning of the day and they agree to work an entire day for a day's wage. They're grateful because they didn't have any work. So this is good for them. They're happy about it. And then he hires some at midday and he agrees to the same terms, full day's wage, even though you're only going to work a half day. And then some come late in the day and he agrees. He makes the same deal with them. At the end of the day, he pays them all the same. Ouch. And the ones who got hired early, guess how they felt? Yeah. Yeah. They, they didn't feel so good about that. They were really angry about that deal because they felt that it was unjust. But that's the heart of God. It's the prodigal, the prodigal father who's wasteful, you know, and, and, and that's, this is the difficult thing about being on the inside. The insider is the one who has the hardest time with it. It's also, I think the reason why, and I'm struggling with this. I don't fully understand this part. I don't fully understand yet. I'm still working through this. Um, usually when I speak, I, I've worked through a lot of the stuff, but this is the part in the new Testament. The references to Jonah there are still a little bit of a conundrum. There's some parts that I think I'm understanding, but so I'll tell you what I do understand and I'll tell you what I don't, but um, there are at least two places, <clears throat> distinct places, uh, two in Matthew, one in Luke, there's a reference to Jonah and Jesus saying, I'm not going to give you any sign at all, except for the sign of Jonah. Now, most people have just interpreted that to say, well, then in clearly in Matthew 12, he says, just as the son of man is going to be in three days and three nights in the belly of the earth. You know, Jonah was in the belly of the whale for three days and three nights. And people just, okay, that's what it is. Um, but it doesn't quite make sense because uh, for, a few, for a few reasons. One is that um, it, it's, it's a difficult sign if it's going to be a sign because the people of that day didn't really know that he was resurrected. It was, you know, his disciples that knew that. So it was difficult as a sign to, to make that argument. But I still think it is a sign. I still think that that is part of the sign. Um, and I think that that's what the, the, the gospel writers are trying to point out. But it's one in which the sign is always going to be difficult because it's the, people want signs that are, you know, well, if you're, if you're exposing me, if this is prophetic and that God is doing something right now, <clears throat> what would, well, let's back up for a moment. What would it, Jesus' people, the people of his day, the Israelites, the Jewish people who were still under the power of Rome, 
what did they want? They wanted to be free. They wanted God to come in and judge their enemy, Rome. Same thing as Jonah wanted was the Ninevites, the Assyrians, who were the oppressors, to be punished. And Jesus takes a different approach, and it's going to be, no, instead, I'm going to suffer. I'm going to suffer. But this love and this favor and grace that God is extending is no longer for a people. It's not going to be for the Jew. It's not like God's got a special plan for the Jewish people any more than God has a special plan for the evangelical people. That's kind of what the book of Jonah is driving at. There is no special plan. It's why the pagans are the heroes in chapter one. It's because it was what they did, not who they were by identity. Like I'm, I'm, an, I'm, a, I'm a Jew or I'm, a Christ, I'm an evangelical or I'm a Catholic or I'm a, it, that's not what saves you. It's are you a person that is ever moving towards greater compassion and greater love? And are you a person who is okay with God pushing the boundaries of who he shows mercy to? That is what's difficult for us. Folks, that's harder than anything else that we've ever been asked by far. Most of us can jump through hoops, follow rules, do everything it takes to be an insider. Most of us can do that. Even if we don't do it, at least we believe, you know, we, we acknowledge it. We can believe it, you know, in our heads. Like, well, that is the right way. But when it comes to can your heart expand to include and to love people that are terribly unlovable. That is so hard. And if I think of this week, I've had plenty of moments where I've really despised certain people, groups of people, you know, and I've had to ask myself once again, that same question that the book of Jonah begs of all of us. What do you do? How do you feel about God? showing greater love and compassion to your enemies. Because if it's all about God coming in and judging one people over another people, the way a lot of theology has been preached, then when does that ever end? When does that ever end? Never. It's always going to be one oppressor conquering another. It's going to be the person who's the oppressed who suddenly gets some powers or the group of people that are oppressed that finally get some power and then they overthrow their oppressors and then they become oppressors. And then the same thing, cycle happens over and over again. Now, if we think in our country, like, well, that doesn't really happen. Oh, well, it does. It does. And it's happening right now. And that's the way Republicans, conservatives feel when a liberal is president or the reverse, when a liberal uh, when a conservative's president and liberals feel this way and the church world feels that way about other groups and they're oppressed and then they are the oppressed. And it's just all the time. And then we seek out ways of conquering. And so, you know, in, in, you know, not with physical arms, but we do so in so many different ways. And the oppression continues. And it takes us looking at the book of Jonah, I think, to see, yeah, I found myself there. It's a good mirror. I find myself there often. It's not for condemnation, not at all. 
It's for, can you stop clinging to worthless idols? That's your image of the divine, the image of God that you possess. The God who judges and comes hard down on those who fail, because you know what? That's an easy one, because I'm always on the inside of that. I'm always, you know, the outsiders are the ones who are getting the, the punishment, not me. I'm on the inside. And Jonah flips that. It's like, no, no, not really. <laughs> not really. That's not the way it works. And so for all of us, we're invited into receiving the love of God. If you forsake our image of the divine, then we can actually access his love. We can actually experience it. But the way we experience it is by giving it, by being okay with God, showing love to our enemies. And as we do, then we experience greater love. Let me ask you a question. Those people, and you know this of your own heart, when you get angry at a certain group of people and your judgment or a certain person, maybe someone who physically harmed you when you were young, and there's lots of hatred towards that person. And that can be justified for sure. Right? How you were raised, whatever else. When you're in that place of anger towards that person, do you feel the overwhelming love and compassion of God? Do you have access to that? And so you can stand on judgment and righteousness, but you will also forfeit the love of God. Or you go back to your own heart. And you go back to compassion and love. That's a practice, not a feeling. Towards the people who have oppressed you, to the people who have harmed you, to the people who have harmed people you love, to the people who are in positions of power who you dislike. You go back to that. And as you move in love and in compassion, for those people, what happens to your own heart? Has there ever been a time where you have moved in love for someone else that you did not yourself feel the love and experience it all over you? It's why you can't handle evil and throw evil at somebody and it not hurt you. You can't throw hatred, anger, judgment at anybody and it not corrupt you in the same way you can't handle love in it not completely overwhelm you as well. So the book of Jonah is pointing to a God that is eternal in compassion. And when Jonah says that, he's actually quoting from Exodus. God speaking to Moses. The one who is compassionate, never ending in love. Yeah. So my friends, this is what we're invited to, is in what way can I actually push towards compassion and love? By the way, this is not, this is not like a, uh, we just get along, we just go along to get along. That's not the kind of love we're talking about. It's truth and love. <laughs> and it is, it is. It's, it's hard. It's the kind of, sometimes it's truth is like, I love you so much. 
And by the way, when truth and love are together and they, they do actually live together, it's we who are the ones who separate truth from love. We make that unfortunate separation, which is like, I'm going to speak the truth, but I'm going to do it in a loving way. <laughs> the, the two are inseparable. When your heart is so full of love for someone, genuine, not love that's like, I just want to keep peace. I just want to get, no, love that's like, I love you so much that I'm going to tell you the truth and it's going to hurt me as much as it hurts you. If it hurts them and it doesn't hurt you, it ain't the truth and it ain't love. But as you speak, if you yourself are moved to tears by the words that you must speak of pain to someone else because it hurts you as much, my friends, you're moving in love. That's truth. And that's the kind of prophetic word that you find most consistent in prophetic literature is that the prophets themselves took no joy. It was not like I stand up here above all of you. It was no, I'm in this with you. And it hurts, but I love so much. And I want to see you experience the compassion and the mercy of God because it's so good.